Uh, this is an intentional time in which we, we dive into God's word uh, so that you can grow in understanding of Jesus, his word, uh, that you can connect relationally with the people at your table and then ultimately grow spiritually. So let's open a word of prayer and we're going to jump in here. Dear Holy Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. We thank you for this moment that we stop the world and we focus on you, on your word that you've given us that brings forth life. Father God, I pray that you open our ears, soften our hearts to receive what you have for us tonight. Speak through me, Holy Spirit, that I might uh, represent you well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So tonight is a, is a very small passage, but it's got a lot of punch to it. And, and I've titled tonight's message, Harvest to Harvester. And, and you'll, you're going to pick up on that in a minute. So if you have your Bibles or your e-Bibles, which is completely acceptable, uh, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 9. And I read from the ESV, just so you know. If, if you have the NLT or the NIV or the King James or New King James, that's awesome. Uh, I just happen to read from the NIV or ESV. So here we go. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. And it says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So thus is the transition from harvest to harvester. See, for us, we are those who have been called out into the harvest. At one point in time, before you were a believer, you were the harvest. And through the efforts of others, you came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And now you have been commissioned to be a harvester. Now, for some of us, we were raised in the church. I myself have been in church my entire life. I can't, I could probably count the number of Sundays that I have missed. For me, coming to church and being active in the church is a regular part of my life. For some of you, this is all really new. You've only been in church for maybe a few months. Coming to Bible study is something very new and, and, and different and that's okay. Right? And this whole element, my passion as a pastor, my passion as a Christian is to help you grow in faith and understanding. Because this book is the most amazing book ever written. It holds all the truths that we need to live a Christ-centered life, and that way we might see him in the afterlife. But there's a transition that has to take place in our lives, and this is partly why you're here. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been to Israel. But if you have, it looks something like this. Well, at least when Jesus was there. So as you can see, the pink up in the top, that's Galilee. That's where Jesus' hometown was. That's where Nazareth is. That's where Capernaum is. That's where a lot of Jesus' ministry happened there. If you look in the green, just above Judea, you see the little long word that says Bethlehem. I know it's not very clear. I apologize, but it's the best I got. That's where Jesus was born. 
And just above that is Jerusalem. And now Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel. Now, just between Jerusalem and Galilee is Samaria. And that is one of the areas that Jesus, for most of his ministry, avoided. But covering the, the, the upper pink and then a little bit around that, that upper lake, that's the Sea of Galilee. That's where all the miracles happened. That's where he fed the 5,000. That's where he walked on water etc. The, the river that runs between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is the Jordan River. Somewhere along that line is where Jesus got baptized. But this is the area in which Jesus spent his entire life. It, 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 I don't know what that word is. It covers roughly 2,800 square miles. So, since most of us don't have a ruler that big, it's roughly the size of Hillsborough County, Pasco County, and Pinellas counties all wrapped together. Jesus' entire life was basically the size of the Tampa Bay area. And all his ministries and all his workings were here, and he covered most of it. And so really, when it was, uh, Scripture says that he went through all the cities and villages, it really means through the, the area of Galilee, so the upper pink part, and then the area of Judea, which is around the city of Bethlehem. So if you ever wanted to know what it looked like, there you go. So what was Jesus' mission? As we read through verse 35, it says he went through all the villages. He went teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel and healing every disease and every affliction. I got to be honest, I got really wrapped up in the concept of the synagogue. And without speaking probably for a couple hours on that, the synagogue started shortly after the Babylonian captivity period. So if we go a quick history lesson. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. They went to Egypt, yes? They were in Egypt for 400 years. Moses led them out, right? They wandered the wilderness for 40 years and then began to establish the kingdom of Israel. Now, in about another 400 years, you now have the kingdoms. You had Saul, David, Solomon, etc., until the kingdoms were divided. Then the king of Persia, or Babylon, came to Israel, captured the northern kingdom, and took people off. And roughly about that time, the temple was destroyed, but people still had a desire to hear the word of God. And so they established synagogues, which were basically house churches. They were small assemblies of people who would come together on a regular basis and worship. And then after the captivity, and when they came back to Israel, they reestablished the temple, but they were accustomed to having synagogues. And so synagogues, they would read the law and they would read the prophets. And their reading cycle took about three years to get through it all. So it's very similar to some of you who might be familiar with a Roman Catholic church or, or a Lutheran church or Episcopalian church where you have a reading calendar where you would read through the scriptures through the course of a year. This is where it's rooted, going back about 2,500 years. But the way, one of the practices of the synagogue is there was a... A, a visiting rabbi, he would have the opportunity to give the message in that synagogue, and that is what Jesus did. And we read this here in this next passage of Scripture, and that's why this is kind of important. So, he came to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up, and as his custom, so that means he had done it more than once before, but this day was special. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, he stood to read and the scroll of the, prophets Isaiah, of the prophet Isaiah was opened to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of God is upon me. Now, I, I'm using my imagination for here for a moment, 
But I'm thinking as he spoke those words, there was a shift in the room. I don't know if you've ever been in a place that when you start praying or there's worship music going in, that all of a sudden there's a, really a, a tangible shift in what you feel and sense. You all of a sudden feel a sense of peace and calm. And I believe as Jesus began to speak these words, the Holy Spirit began to roll through that synagogue and the Spirit of the Lord was upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Same word for the gospel. And he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set, the, at, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was a huge moment in this synagogue. And there might have only been 30 or 40 people in that presence, but at that moment was the ushering in of the Messiah that he was going to set forth in his ministry and move throughout. But it's unfortunate that the people of Nazareth did not accept him as Christ. They did not follow him as Messiah. It actually led to his inability, Christ's inability to perform many miracles there. This is, might have been one of my other favorite scriptures that comes from Luke 19.10. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the heart of our Savior, that he knew that there were lost people and it was his responsibility to find them. He also modeled this for us so that we would in the same way seek the lost and they would be saved through the name of Jesus. The other beautiful part of Jesus is he didn't come in that model king as we would think, or as actually they thought. They were expecting some kind of triumphant man to walk into Jerusalem to deliver them from the Roman Empire who was oppressive and taxing and laborious. But Jesus came in these words. He said, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's what he's done for us. And he has set that model for us that we would learn to serve and give ourselves to others. Back to Matthew 9. So, so we see Jesus. He, his mission was to proclaim the good news of the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. He was, came to heal and he came to teach the truth. And that's what... If we look at like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we see Jesus teaching the law as it should be read. But he also had great compassion. I don't know about you, but compassion is something we need. When we are faced with a trial, a tragedy like a death, a sudden illness or a diagnosis, a some kind of bad news that comes and just shakes us to the core. What is it we need most? We need people to come around us and say, I love you and that I'm here for you and I care for you. And, and this is what is moved in Jesus's heart that he saw these people who were harassed and helpless. <clears throat> See, unfortunately, God had Early on, through Moses, established a priesthood that would rule over Israel. And through that priesthood came the Pharisees, and these were the leaders of the temple and leaders of the Jewish people. 
But instead of caring for the people as they ought, they ended up becoming very oppressive. Jesus accused them of robbing widows' houses. They would put loads on people that they couldn't even operate. They always thought they were going to sin, and there was no grace that would come from God, and the people had become distant. And Jesus saw this in these people's eyes and said, there's a better way. And he says, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And later in a couple of weeks, we're going to hear about this good shepherd and how Jesus is the good shepherd. And as Jesus then turned from the crowd and looked at his disciples, he says, the harvest is plentiful. And who is the harvest? The harvest is this crowd. It is the people in front of him who have been harassed by the Pharisees. But the harvest is still today. There are people around us in our households, at our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, who fall under the oppression of Satan, who are under the, the oppression of the evil one who is trying to destroy their lives and keep them from the grace of God. But you and me have an opportunity to be those laborers. Right? It says, therefore, pray earnestly. Jesus' first commandment to the disciples in order to work the harvest is for them to pray. So I don't know about you, but prayer is always one of those things that some days I do it like really, really well. And other days I go, ah, Lord Jesus, help me make this green light. But prayer is one of the most powerful things we have. Think to Moses. God had told Moses that he was going to destroy. Oops, wrong way. That he was going to destroy the Israelites. That he was so fed up with the rebellion, their grumbling and complaining, it says that Moses prayed to the Lord and the Lord changed his mind. Now, we don't have time to get into what all that means, but I'm telling you that there is power in our prayers. And God has called us to pray. This is what he asked the disciples to do. This is what he's asking us to do. Is to take the time and consider the harvest around us and pray. Now there's a warning here before we get too far. And it's found just a little later in Matthew 10. And it goes like this. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Dear Christians, your faith is not passive. Your call to be a Christian is to reject passivity and to be a person of action. My heart is that you will be encouraged to become a harvester. Now, what I'm not telling you to do is to become one of those street preachers who stands on the corners and yells at people and calls them all sorts of nasty names and hoping that they're going to come to some form of repentance. I don't, I believe that some of those men and women believe that they are doing something good for the kingdom. And they might be. But if I look at Christ, the one thing that he did most 
was he sat at table with people. He sat in people's homes. He, as we read last week, he went to the house of Levi and had dinner with him and his friends. He went to the house of Zacchaeus and sat at table. He had Nicodemus and sat at table. How many times did he break bread to sit with people to get to know them right where they were? And if it wasn't in someone's house, it was often in the street. Think of the woman with the bleed or the, the woman caught in adultery or the woman at the well. He wasn't standing out there berating them or belittling them, calling them wicked sinners or all sorts of other names. No, he saw their need and gave them love. So my encouragement to you as you begin your evangelistic ministry, that you do not forsake this warning and deny Christ. But don't take it as a warning that you have to go out in some belligerent way to bring people to faith. Because I promise you, you will win more people with honey than you will with vinegar. I truly believe if you can engage people in a gospel conversation at your leisure, through relationship, invite people over for dinner. I would believe that most of us live in some form of a community whether that be an apartment complex or a townhome complex or some form of neighborhood. I, I doubt any of you live so far in the sticks that you don't have a neighbor for quite some ways, right? So the people immediately around you, you I hope you know your neighbors, that you get to know the people across the street and to the left and to the right and maybe even behind you, but that you begin to engage them in a way that is loving and kind. Maybe this is one of my favorite ways to do it. I like to go to Publix and I like to be kind to the cashiers. These women and men, there, there are some men I know, but a lot of them are ladies, aren't given much of the time of day. They see transaction after transaction, good after good, people just coming through who, who are either busy on their cell phones yelling at the kids, worrying about the bill, sorting through their coupons. But how many people actually stop to ask, how was your day? Most of the time, I get okay. I ask, I ask some ladies, they say, yeah, I'm having a good day. That's great, I'm glad you're having a great day. But when I meet that person who says, it's just okay, I go, what would make it better? Well, what would, what would change your situation that would be better? And I have her full attention because it's her job, so she has to talk to me. <laughs> She's ringing my groceries up. Sometimes I fill my car up just so I can have more time. And some of them will give me, well, you know, I've got four or five hours left in my shift, and, and, and it's just a long day. But I've had several actually be really honest oh, I'm having a hard time with my parents, or I'm having a hard time with my spouse, or someone just got sick. And in that moment, I say, can I pray for you? Now, I don't always pray with every cashier that I come across, and I don't always pray right there at the register. But I am sincere when I say that I will pray for them. Because I believe that little touch is getting them one step closer to Jesus. It's that simple that, that we can just begin to introduce the gospel into our everyday conversation. So I'll look at it this way. 
our first responsibility is to pray. We pray daily to seek God's will. That every day, with a simple prayer saying, God, help me do your will today. Just, just, just today. Just help me. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about next week. But just today, help me do your will. Second is then listen. We listen to see what God has to say. Does he actually give you, hey, I need you to do this or to do that? Or is it through the circumstances of our day that we find a way to interject the gospel? Following Jesus' model, third, we look. Look around you for opportunities. Jesus saw that the harvest was plentiful because his eyes were open to the people around him and not fixed on himself. Fourth is to act with compassion. Be kind. Be kind. Now, kindness and niceness are often interchanged. Being nice is just, oh, I hope you have a great day. But being kind is actually being willing to step into the mess and do something about it. So we pray, we listen, we look. And we act. Now, in, in a few moments, we're actually going to start talking about the gospel itself. But before we get there, I read this great book a handful of years ago. Uh, if you can't see it, it's called Sharing Jesus Without Fear by William Fay. It's not a long book. It's actually really easy to read. But it, if you are really interested in learning how to share your faith with others in a very practical way, this book is a great place to start. It's called Sharing Jesus Without Fear, by William Fay, that's F-A-Y. He wrote these little questions. And I felt that they were worthy of sharing with you them tonight. So from sharing Jesus without fear, to start a, a conversation, a spiritual conversation, he has these five question surveys. The first one is, do you have some kind of spiritual belief? Now, in America, being that most of us have been raised in some form of church. If you give that, hey, do you go to church or do you believe in God? You're going to probably get a yes. Now, the further we move into a post-Christian society, which means more and more people don't go to church or have left the church, you probably won't get a yes. But today, because of New Ageism and spiritualism and, and all these other forms of spirituality... You can it's simply ask someone, do you have any kind of spiritual belief? And they might tell you. They might say, oh, I, I practice yoga and I, and I have stones or I do this or I do that. Or someone actually might be honest. Say, oh, I'm, I go to Grace Family Church. That'd be awesome. But there's a chance that some people won't give you an answer. And, and actually for a moment, when I, when I sit with people and as I get to know people in the pastoral care level, I, I actually do ask this question. Because as I'm beginning to minister to someone, I need to know where they are with Jesus. Because if I say, do you believe in Jesus? Most people are going to tell me yes, because they're in church, and that's the right answer. But if I ask them about their faith or their spiritual beliefs, I get anything from, oh yeah, I talked to the man upstairs. I go, do you live in an apartment? Someone lives above you? 
to that Jesus and I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But there's a very big difference. That I, I, I this is actually slightly sad, but there's a number of people who says, "Oh yeah, I talked to I talked to the man upstairs." Right? I'm 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 God and I are good. Well, what does that mean? What is that grounded in? That's like someone. That's like Santa Claus. That's like someone that's kind of distant that sneaks in out of my house once a year. That's just creepy. Or to know that you know the loving Savior Jesus who is now dwelling inside of you. That's two very different spectrums. But today, this is, this is where we're at. So then the second question, to you, who is Jesus? The, the reality is, is most of the world probably has some form of idea of his name because they use it all the time, but they use it out of context. It's GD this or GC that, right? Cheese and rice. It's a reason, it's a cuss word. We don't cuss with any other deity's name. We cuss in Jesus' name, which is terrible. But Muslims recognize Jesus as a man from God. The Most other forms of religion, Hindus and Buddhists, recognize Jesus as a great teacher or moral philosopher. So to ask someone where they feel or what they think of Jesus is actually a great way to swing the conversation to the third question, do you believe, think there's a heaven or a hell? You would be surprised the number of Christians today who don't believe in hell. That, that, that the idea of hell is now abstract, that no one, God, a loving God actually can't send someone to hell. That doesn't happen. And the reality is true. There is... A man who stands, his name is Jesus, and he will either say, depart from me, I never knew you, or welcome into the kingdom. Then we go into, if you die tonight, where would you go? If heaven, why? A lot of people believe that they are good people. And, and, and we have to understand that when we talk about goodness, on a human-to-human -human level, I believe all of you are great, decent people. Because if you were serial killers, you'd be in jail. Right? So, so, so brother, person to person, yes, we are good people. We, we drive the speed limit. We pay our taxes on time. We're respectful to our elders. We hold doors open for ladies. Right? We're good people. So why would God send good people to hell? Well, you're not good compared to God's standard. See, the difference is that we don't go to heaven and hell based on you and me. Because if I've been on more missions trips than you have, and I've tithed more than you have, and I've read my Bible more than I have, I'm a better person, yes? No. But, but if comparing you to me. But the problem is, is I'm not comparing, God's not comparing me to you. He's comparing me to him. And me to him, me to Jesus, I'm way far away from being a good person. And that's what God judges on, not person to person, but me to Jesus, each of us to Jesus. And then we end with this question, by the way, if you were believing what you are believing is not true, would you like to know? Would you like to know that your faith system is not the truth? Would you want to know the truth? Now, I don't know how often you're going to get through all these questions. The, the likelihood is you may not. Most people are going to reject you. Sorry. Jesus says it first, so I'm just repeating what he said. He said, the world will hate you because they hated me first. But when you are in that right relationship with someone, whether it be a sibling or parent or child, cousin, a colleague, 
And when you go through that tough time and they know that for whatever reason you go to church on Sundays on a regular basis and you love Jesus and they come knocking on your door saying, hey, can, can I talk to you? Can, can, I, can I understand why you have peace, why our department's being downsized and, and everyone else is freaking out? That is your window to share Jesus. My encouragement for you is not to necessarily go out tonight or tomorrow morning and start walking the streets and, and talking to everyone about Jesus. My heart is that you are going to find the people immediately in your sphere of influence. Your family members, your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings, your cousins, and make sure that they're saved first. And then I want you to look to your neighbors. Make sure that they're saved. And then I want you to look to your colleagues and make sure that they're saved. And then when God says, I need you to go to another country or another city, that you will be prepared to share the gospel. So now, for those of you who are diligent and flip the paper over, you'll find these. I pulled a handful of scriptures that are gospel-centered. So if you wanted a place to reference, here they are. This isn't all of them. These are just some key ones. As we see John 3, 16, For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And Romans 6, 1, 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save. In 3, 3 and 5 and 8, all beautiful chapters, all beautiful passages. 1 John 1, 5 through 12 says, For if anyone sins God and confesses our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And if we do sin, we have a mediator between God and man, his name Jesus, who was, became a propitiation for our sins. Or Ephesians, we're going to get there in a second, or 1 Peter. So these are for you to look up. I, I hope that through this week that you stop and you read these and you learn these and you glean from these and you learn to apply these. But why do we share the gospel? It's not just that we live forever with God. That's a beautiful thing. I really do. But what about now? Most of us, most people you're going to talk to are worried about today or tomorrow, correct? No one's really worried about eternity. Most of us are worried about the bill due at the end of the week. And that's why we have these scriptures. Gospel culture scriptures. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's a lesson for another day. But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I think, I put that on top because I think having an abundant life, having life is something that we all need. That we all are looking for. We're looking for that purpose, that fulfillment in life. And in Christ is that fulfillment. <coughs> John 8, 36 for the, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Do you have a, something that's holding you back, an addiction, an emotion, a situation? There's freedom in Christ. John 15, 9 says, For as the Father has loved me, I love you. Abide in my love. Do you know what it means to abide in the love of God? It's simply sitting with God and allowing God to love you right where you are. 
It is not going him with your list of needs and it's not necessarily going to him in thanksgiving and praise, but it's literally saying, God, I love you and I appreciate how much you love me. I don't know about your home life, but maybe I had a good childhood. I had parents who loved me, and I can think back in my memory of times of being with my parents and how literally just being with them that I knew that they loved me. That they didn't have to say anything, they didn't ask anything of me, but literally their presence and their persona said, I love you. God's love for you is that and more. John 15, 11 says, For I have done these things that your joy may be complete, or that your joy may be full. In this world of hardships and heartaches, where we seem to be always mourning or masking our pain with something, Jesus offers us pure joy. John 14, 26, For I give you my peace. My peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. Which means, we, and all, we all know this, because the commercials on TV says if you go on this vacation, you drink this drink, you eat this food, you wear this jewelry, you put on this perfume, you date this person, you will have peace. But as soon as that bottle's empty, what do you need? Another drink. As soon as that date is over, what you need? Another date. And as soon as that meal is over, what do you need? Another meal. As soon as those clothes grow old, what do you need? You need new clothes. See, Jesus gives his peace that never runs out. It never runs dry. And to be honest, it's beyond our comprehension. And then Romans 5, 1 through 5. It says, By grace we have been justified with God, and we now have peace with him. And then it says, through sufferings, we rejoice because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope in God never puts us to shame. If your hope is in God, there is no shame in knowing what lies ahead. This is what we share with people when we share the gospel. We share the abundant life. We share freedom, we share love, we share joy, we share peace, and we share hope. I'm going to skip to two. I was going to read John 3.16, but I'm going to hop down to Ephesians 2. And it starts with this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you once walked. And you is y'all, which includes me. Y'all, this plural of you. You all, y'all, South people, come on. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That was us. All of us were sons and daughters of disobedience. Among whom we all, again, all, once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature's children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So he's speaking to the Christian church who have now been called out, but that we all were associated with the children of wrath. In my favorite Bible verse, but God. See, salvation is not a work that you can do. You can't get into heaven by your merit, by your good wishes, good vibes, good energies, positive pushes, or anything else like that. 
It is a work solely and fully through Christ. That but God, being rich in mercy, having great love, with which he has loved us, giving even when we were dead in our trespasses. This is not, sometimes we have described being lost at sea. We're, we're, we're floundering, we're drowning, we're flailing our arms, and the Coast Guard shows up and lifts us up to safety, and that's salvation. No. You were a floater. You were face down in the water, lifeless. Jesus pulled you out, breathed eternal life into you, and now you walk with him. Because you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. I'll tell you right now, through my life, that I have used up a lot of grace. But I'm thankful God has so much more. In kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. This, it is a gift from God. So the grace that saves us is a gift from God, not as a result of works. You didn't earn it. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Actually, we're going to rewind a second. The this is not your own doing is not only grace, but it's also faith that God has given you faith to believe. That before God and him interjecting himself in your life, you didn't believe in him. You were not seeking him. You didn't care about him. But when God came into your heart and began to change, you began to believe and you walked in the grace so that you can't boast that, oh yeah, I was seeking God and I found him. Well, God wasn't lost, you were. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, i.e., we are now the harvesters, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. I want to end with two more scriptures, and I'm going to kind of cruise through them. But First Peter 3, 1 and 2. Now, it says wives, but this could go for husbands too or others. But it says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, meaning if you, Peter is writing to a church full of women whose husbands are not believers yet. And he's saying that you, that they may be won without word by the conduct of their wives, meaning our gospel-centered living should act in such a way that the people around us will recognize Jesus. That we don't actually even have to say a word. Uh, Francis of Sisi once said, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, I truly believe that this isn't a call just to, to women or wives, but this is a call to men too. That our conduct as men should be in such a way that when the world looks at us, they see Jesus. Back to prayer. James 5. I love this passage. 16 through 20. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power in its working. 
You can underline that, highlight that, take it to the bank. That check will not bounce. If you are acting in the righteousness of Christ and your prayers align with God, they will do mighty things. James makes this comparison to Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man, a nature like ours, meaning Elijah was just like you and me. And he prayed fervently. He prayed a lot that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. One man's prayer stopped the rain for three and a half years. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. The heavens gained rain and the earth bore its fruit. Therefore, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That is your charge. Our charge as Christians is to go find those who are wandering, those who are lost. And when we bring them back, their sins are forgiven because of what Jesus has done. But it is our responsibility to go out and do it. I know this is a bit heavy. <coughs> I was really excited about this one. But the gospel is a beautiful thing. If, all right. Okay. I believe that most all of you are Christians. I don't know you all personally, but I'm going to go on a limb and say that everyone in this room is a Christian. Okay? You don't have to raise your hands. You don't have to nod. You don't have to smile. But just let's just go that everyone in this room is a Christian, which means everyone has been impacted by the love of Jesus. If you understand the great love that Christ has for you, would you not want to share that love with someone else? Would you not want to share that love with the person you care the most about? If your best friend, you and your best friend are walking down the street and a car comes veering off the road towards you, would you not throw your best friend out of the way to save their life? Why in the same way would we not want to save their souls through Jesus? Does not mean you need to be a Bible thumper. This does not mean you need to know the whole Bible. This is, doesn't mean you need all the doctrine and theology that there is. All you need is to know where you have come from and where Christ has brought you. No one, no one can rebuke your testimony. For I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's that simple. We all have a story. We all have a faith story. We can all share where we have come from and where we are going. And how we're doing it through Christ. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you I thank you for funny things. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your joy. I thank you for your peace. Lord God, give us your grace. Give us the courage to Seek those who are wandering and bring them back home. Give us the words to speak and the courage to speak them. Let us not be afraid, but let us go boldly with courage. Thank you for my friends, and I pray a blessing over them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.